My guest today is Dr. Matt McCullough. Matt did a PhD in history at Vanderbilt University and then went into the pastorate. We had a great time driving around Nashville, including taking in some excellent coffee. We talked about Matt's book, Remember Death. One question I always like to ask everybody is, what was your first car? My first car. I married into my first car. Okay. Uh, Hopefully that's good. But I'll say this: the first, the car that I grew up driving, yeah, uh, was my dad's early '90s Dodge Colt. Okay. My favorite car to date. Yeah. yeah. It was a stick shift. Yeah. Made out of tin foil. I I'd be surprised if it had four horsepower. Right. Uh, is it a four-speed, five-speed? Do you remember? It was a four-speed, okay. I think. Yeah, probably. It I was two-door. You know, it had vinyl seats. You know, just uh-huh. your skin would just melt to it <laughs> on a hot Alabama day. I would say, where is that? But Alabama? man, it was fun to drive yeah, because yeah. you're just sitting right on top of the pavement. Yeah, and, totally. Uh, taking your life in your hands every time you. Well, I'm driving a stick. Out, yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason. I, I mean, I, I always feel like when I'm I'm really driving. Yeah. Like when I'm driving an automatic, I feel like, yeah. okay, I'm just kind of part of this whole thing. Totally agree. This feels like I'm in control of the car. Yeah. It just gives you something so, to do. Yeah, well, that's it makes it too. harder to, test, to text and drive. Harder to text and drive it. I, I, yeah. I've thought maybe we should revert and make all teenagers drive a stick there for the first go. 10 years or something like that. There you yeah. go. So how did you end up here? You, I mean, you did a PhD at Vanderbilt. I did, yeah, um, that's what brought us here. So you were in Louisville. I don't mm-hmm. know if we overlapped. I, I don't think I knew you there, but. I don't think so. So um, when did you come? 2005. Yeah, you were right after me. So we, uh, my wife and I, both, we grew up together in South Alabama, moved to Louisville for college okay. at Boyce College. Right. Um, so I was there for three years, 2000 to 2003. Not a lot of times do people get to talk about their PhD dissertation. Yeah, so that is I really, true. I really want to hear. Uh, I really do. Especially, I almost, if you could go ahead and call me Dr. McCullough, it would be one okay. of the only five maybe times in my life. Okay, that Dr. McCullough, please that way. So tell me about your dissertation. Yeah. Just use that the rest of the time. Okay, That'd I will. I will. <laughs> uh, so I studied Christian nationalism. Okay. And once I got to the point of, of the dissertation and narrowed it in, I was very interested in Christian nationalism among American pastors. And so to, to make the most bang for my buck, I focused in on times of war because that's when pastors were most likely sure. to be talking about what is yeah, America, yeah. what is its role in the world, what is God doing Yeah, and people nation. are listening too. People are listening, yeah. yeah it's just... It, it, it's, it's not like new ideas necessarily come from yeah. those times of war, but ideas get expressed more likely than not and sometimes get refined. My advisor, who also studied uh, religion and war, was his, was his focus oh, okay. um, in the colonial period. And I was his research assistant. I had done a ton of work with him on background stuff for that, collecting sources and working through them. He finally, probably from being tired of having dead-end conversations with me, just suggested, well, why don't you take some of these questions into a more recent war that um, hasn't been talked about as much. Huh. So, which was? It was the Spanish-American War. Okay, yeah, for sure. And a... uh, man, it is tailor-made for dissertation because it only lasted four months. <laughs> so all it, you've got built-in boundaries for what you have to cover. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to explain yourself that much. Right. Nobody In knows the anything about war, this. It's like seven years of material. Right, right. Um, and uh, and this was four months. So it also was a, a flash in the pan. I mean, it didn't. I think it was very. Influential, huh. obviously. Take my word for it. Yeah. It was. No, I mean, it's. I mean, I don't think it's much on our American consciousness at but all. It's, it's not, not a big part of our narrative. It's not right? a big part of our narrative, right. and so that uh, that's huh. a perfect combo for you. Yeah, that's mission. cool. Influential, but not very talked about. What I argued was that um, it was much more polished than this in the published version. 
but that this particular war had a set of circumstances uh, in, in, in the way that it played out that were uniquely suited to confirm a view of American destiny that, that was, if not completely new at the time, certainly mm. being expressed in new ways and then would go on to be very influential. So that view mm. of American destiny mm. is that America's role is to not merely be an example that other nations rally to, city on a hill style, mm. but to take freedom, to take the benefits yeah. of American society to other people by force if necessary. Which is going to continue all the way, all the way to today, to, really. Through to today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Spanish-American War right. is first, the first time yeah. that Americans waged a war beyond continental borders right. with the express purpose of freeing someone else who is not free. You've got a little bit of that kind of rhetoric that, that starts to come out about halfway through the Civil War when the war really became focused on emancipation uh, for, for right, the Union. Right. So it's kind of an extension um, of that. It, it, sense, it, right? it is, but in some new ways, because these are uh, these are people that are being oppressed by Spain and Cuba okay. and the Philippines. And America, at least going into it, is talking about just setting them free for their own sake. Yeah. Not and the to, masters not are picking up them. on that. And they and love that. that. Yeah, right. they love that. So they're, they're picking up on it and even taking it further, using analogies like the death of Jesus. Huh. as a sacrifice to justify sacrificing the lives of American boys for people who are, who are not able to free themselves. Hmm. There's explicit connections being drawn in their sermons. So, I think they thought that America, they could not imagine America not being good for the people that, right, they, right. that they went to, to liberate. And so hmm. they were not prepared for what actually happens in this war, which is that after the war itself is officially uh, ended with Spain, when America decides to stay put in Cuba, and especially in the Philippines, those who had been insurgents against Spanish authority there turned on Americans hmm. because they saw saw for what it was, one nation taking over where another one had left off. So is that where our relationship with the Philippines started? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, huh. you know, the, what, what happens then is a much longer war between uh, Americans and Filipinos. Hmm that ends with the kind of brutality that Americans had complained about hmm. Spain using in Cuba. Right. Concentration camps to starve right. out uh, hmm. to starve out support among villagers right. for uh, guerrilla warriors. Right. So that's what had happened in Cuba as Spain was basically starving uh, all these people to try to right. keep them from supporting the guerrillas. And um, it, it comes to that under American policy in the Filipino war. But by then, Attention had really waned. You know, they weren't paying right. as much attention. I mean, I've to never it. heard so, that. Yeah, Most yeah. people probably haven't. And yeah. Obviously, it's not a very well, and the positive chapter. At the, at the time, weren't weren't paying attention or preaching the kind of sermons at that point that they were. Because things when, had gone on. Exactly. Right, yeah. So I t I told it as an ironic and tragic tale. Yeah. Of what seemed to me to be genuine concern gone wrong, and it's and a cautionary tale about the danger of ever thinking you know what God is doing yeah. or that God ever accomplishes unblemished good through nations. Mm. Um, and, the, and that we ought to think about nations realistically as, as mixed bags yeah. Yeah. because they're made up of people who are mixed bags mm -hmm. good, with good uh, motives and impure ones. And it's and, not as if it'd be always wrong to intervene. Well, some people might think it is, but it doesn't yeah, seem like it'd be always wrong debate. to intervene. But well, I, I mean, think World what, War II, I'm glad we intervened. <laughs> I think what, what we can't afford to do, even with World War II, is everything we intervene and don't bring harm with yeah. us. It's good. That, um, that, that Christians shouldn't ever baptize an intervention to such an extent that we minimize what kind of human cost will come with it. I knew I, I was interested in pastoring. I knew that that was not what I came to Vanderbilt to train for. So Vanderbilt was about 
being, you know, I was 20 years old at the time when yeah. I first got here, and too young to, to seriously pursue church ministry at the time, I thought. I had these deep interests in the academic life and thought maybe I would teach for a while if I could get trained for that, get an opportunity, and then pastor. Sure. But just wasn't sure, and it was a good chance to grow up a little bit. Sure. Um, during the time that I was in grad school, I mean, I still was in love with the academic life. Mm-hmm. I, I, to this day, I miss some of that. Sure. I miss the, the conversations with people who are just as into it as you are, and the chance to read new books and to get a brand new fresh syllabus and work through it. I love all that, but during the time that I was working on the dissertation, it was just becoming more and more clear to me that my desires had shifted more quickly than I thought they would towards local church ministry. I just really wanted to do it if I could. This way, we need our powder crew. Or yeah, powder I know. Both of our heads. <laughs> the heads not made for this direct sun. Exactly. All right. So choose a number between 17 and 183. 17 and 183. You know that common question. Uh, how am I supposed to do that? Just choose a number. If not, we can have Siri do it. You want Siri to do okay. it? Okay. Uh, um. So you're wanting me to choose a meaningful number? No, 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 just choose a number. We can have Siri, you want Siri to do it? How about 183? Okay, that's fine. I'll push you all the way to your limit. That's fine, well, then what I need you to do is open to page 183 in this book and then read, but that's that's actually probably good, because hopefully your last last page has something very significant on it. It's the final two paragraphs I know, that's of the why book. I, I, I do oh, my homework. I see what 17 you've done to 183. Here. <laughs> it wasn't just some random numbers. So, uh, there's a forward. I thought Russ you were going to like, interpret some it. sort of Enneagram oh, right, number yeah. off I'm of what do number. I'm going to do phrenology on your head. What number I chose? Oh, this is Belmont. I've been here. Yeah. Okay. So keep going here. Okay. And so then you can hang it right. So page 183. So you chose the last one. So just read that that uh, last paragraph, I guess. Think of Paul's image as a gloriously redeemed version of Pascal's nightmare. For Pascal, faced with death, we're each like a condemned prisoner in a line of executed criminals. In every death of every other person, we see our own foreshadowed. Quote, Those remaining see their own condition in that of their fellows and looking at each other with grief and despair await their turn. End quote. But for Paul, our solidarity with Adam as in Adam all die, only fuels our solidarity with Christ. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. We look to Jesus as a forecast of our story. We look carefully at what happened to him. We see the victory he won over the grave, and we know that whatever may happen to us on our journey, however great the pain of disappointment, of grief, of death itself, we've been there already in Christ, and we're headed where he's already gone. We've set our eyes on Jesus, and looking at each other with grief and hope, we simply await our turn. The end. The end. It doesn't actually say the end, but that was good. That was (laughs) nice. Good. So it is pretty nice to get to read the final paragraph. But why don't you tell us? So this your new book, Remember Death. Yeah, Remember Death, which I just read and enjoyed very much. You did. I did. 
Thank and, you for uh, reading it. Yeah, you're very welcome. And why don't you, using that last paragraph, yeah. why don't you tell us what the argument of the book is and maybe just whatever you, whatever your current thoughts are on it. So the argument of the book is that, um, is that by thinking more clearly, more honestly, more consistently about death, we can deepen our attachment to Jesus and his promises. His value to us is relative to what he saves us from. And so if you don't have a clear view of what he saves you from, then you won't have a clear view of him. If you cheapen what he's come to save you from or, or try to numb yourself to the pain of it, then you're also numbing yourself to Jesus and, and his deeper value. And I wanted to write that partly because the, the Bible is so consistent and clear about the, the problem of death. It talks about it so much. But, but also because in our time and place, um, we don't think or talk about death as often um, uh, as we would have here in, in the same country, say, 300 years ago. Even 100 years ago. Even 100 years right. ago. We are detached from death as a, as a culture. There's, there's exceptions to this, of course. But there is a cultural phenomenon that many people have acknowledged and recognized, not just me, of detachment from the fact of our mortality that's unique to our time and place, makes us different from anywhere else in the world, any other time in history. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that has a direct, uh, the, one, of the, one of the pieces of fallout, if you will, from that detachment is that Jesus is harder to, to see and to love. Of course, it's really struck and resonated with the first part of the book where you start off talking about just what you were just saying, that, yeah. that we have become inoculated from death, except for violent death. We like yeah. NCIS or whatever, yeah. but it's because it's kind of separate from reality. Yeah, it makes us. it seem like it's exotic and yeah. not real. Yeah, but, it's a but fantasy. we don't, like I've, I've often talked about this with students, like we, people used to be to die in yeah. your house yeah. and then even to be laid out yeah. for the visitation in yeah. your parlor the place where you sleep and then we eat your meals or in yeah. you know the front room of the house everybody yeah. come by and now yeah. we you know created this funeral home yeah. which is why it's called that yeah. most people probably aren't aware of that so because you can't it's have a, it in your real life it, yeah it's a home just for funerals yeah. but it still has the home kind of part mm -hmm. of it and just how inoculated that is from death and yeah. and it, as you even address in the book it's not like there's some maybe you know inherent value in morbidity yeah. and i'm sure you no. got that from people of course. maybe even mentioned that why are yeah. you writing a book on death of course yeah you get a lot of jokes stuff. about it you know right. yeah. i think joking is one of the common most common reactions to death it's a taboo subject yeah. so we can't talk about it straightforwardly yeah so you either get this kind of yuck factor why would you do yeah. that or you you laugh it off Right, by right. instinct, you make a joke about it. Um, right. And I've definitely had to put up with a lot of that. I bet. <laughs> so early on in the book, you make the distinction between the Ars Moriendi, mm -hmm. which is a very common thing in, well, going back to ancient times, yeah. even, I believe, yeah. the sort of art of dying, yep. dying well. Yep. But that's not what you're doing. It's not you want to say doing. something about that difference? Yeah, it's not what I'm doing. So there, there are two streams um, that are... That are show up in the Christian tradition um, related to death, one being Ars Moriendi, like you said, art of dying. This is all about the, 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 the facing of death in the moment that it's come for you, wow. I mean, preparing to experience death in faith. And there were all these traditions about how to do that well. And um, Christian and non. Christian and non, absolutely. It was a big point of fascination. Um, I'm not touching that. Um, I, I do think that what I'm trying to do is relevant to, to I pray that it will be relevant for all of us who read it when we come to die 
that we will have, have built up a track record of hoping on Christ that will serve us well at that time. But, but my book falls in a tradition known as the Memento Mori, which is remember death. It's about having death in front of you as, as part of your awareness of who you are and what the world is like um, that, that marks you and shapes how you think about yourself and how you experience your life. So it's, it's not about that end point, though it's relevant to the end point. It's about everything that happens before the end point. Viewing all of life in light of that end. So memento mori is for all of us. It's for yeah. everybody all the time. Well, let's talk about that with children because that's one yeah. of the things that's certainly striking about earlier times and then has majorly changed. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, I feel truly ambivalent about that. I feel like to some degree it makes sense that we... Yeah are sensitive to children's fears yeah, probably yeah. and just because the puritans you know did it or whatever doesn't it's not good enough for me i mean yeah. it might be, might be good <laughs> but that, i'm not a that's an argument in its favor but not a definitive one yeah, yeah for sure right. i mean i i uh yeah right. i'm ambivalent about that tradition actually myself but, but that's you know, another I can, conversation I, yeah it is a, i mean i i can imagine that you know the puritans probably had grammar alphabet books that I think you even mentioned something like this. Maybe it was the yeah. Puritans, but that you know, yeah, it was the all Puritans. skull and crossbones. You know, the New England and, Primer. You're gonna die. Taught you know? them how to remember so, their yeah, letters. The yeah. A is for uh, alligator. That's right. B so that is was for ball. C is for cat. And, and uh, death or something, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So few of them like that. Yeah. So to get back to the to the question, so you know, I, again, I I can see what you're arguing or and maybe you're not arguing strongly about children but i can see the general argument you're making yeah. would make sense and at the other on the other hand i don't feel like we've completely regressed maybe there is some greater sensitivity to yeah. child psychological development that yeah. maybe they didn't have so i'm just yeah. curious if you could reflect on that i'm absolutely bit. open yeah. to that i don't know i mean so i'm facing this i have kids yeah with your kids every day every day almost eight year old you're gonna die a six-year-old and a two-year-old yeah. and okay. and no absolutely not but I am not hiding it from them. Yeah. So anytime it comes up, uh, we're, talking, we're talking about someone in our family. Uh, sure. Our family member died um, a couple of years ago, almost two years ago. Brought him to the funeral. We talked about it yeah. a lot. Um, when deaths occur in, in the public eye, you know, if there's something in the news that they happen to see or ask questions about, I try to shoot really straight with them in the answers. Um, when we talk about Jesus and why I'm trusting in Him and why I want them to trust in Him. Um, death is a factor in that. Mm. Uh, we, do, we definitely talk about sin a lot right. and our need for forgiveness, but um, but I, I try to straightforwardly tell them that I need Jesus because my body is going to die and I don't want it to. I right. want to be. I want to live with you and with Him forever. Right. Right. Um, and I want them trusting in Jesus quickly. At this point, I don't have a real positive agenda that I'm trying to push on them. Um, I don't, I don't bring up death on any particular planned out Great home schedule. run. Yeah. Too bad you're yeah, going to die. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, nothing like nothing that. Right? Like that. That would be more. But I'm, I'm trying to check my inner desire to avoid hard conversations yeah, about it. Yeah. That's, that's and and as it comes, I want them to, I want to explain the world to them as they experience it. So as, as it yeah. comes up, I'm trying to talk about it. Yeah. I think you're right, though. I think that, that the Puritans were more in your face about it than I want to be. Uh, and they didn't know as much as we do now about child developmental psychology and um, yeah. I think there's room for, for filtering how much kids know and when right 
Yeah. I just think we've gone too far. About yeah, that. I think you're probably yeah. right. I mean, moderation in all things, right? The amazing value we put on medicine, the reliance, and also yeah. particularly on medical doctors like Vanderbilt Medi totally. or something as the most important people in society now. So coming at it from a little different angle, but I think it yeah. connects to what you're doing. What, what first struck me about this is that I was thinking about um, the, a PhD, yeah, a doctor of philosophy, and you probably yeah. heard all the old jokes, yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, my dad's not the kind of doctor that helps people, you know what I mean? Just a doctor of philosophy, right? And so, so I run a large PhD program and so I'm, right. you know, regularly asking, what is this, what is the value of this, right. honestly? You know, for people to spend time and money right. to get a doctorate in philosophy slash theology, various sorts. And what, one of the things that was a real turning point for me was actually a, a retired doctor, medical doctor in Louisville that I got to know who actually went to Vanderbilt Medical okay. School. He was a longtime child neurologist and he he came to realize that what he did, as good as it was, was actually kind of boring. And that it wasn't really uh, to use my he didn't call it this, but I would call it it wasn't metaphysical. It really was just learning, it was a trade. You know, it's, lear it's learning how to analyze things. You know, he's a very intelligent guy and it's, you know, I'm very, we're all very thankful for great medical care. Yeah. But it wasn't philosophical in the sense yeah. that it wasn't, it was really just a trade that any any very intelligent person could learn to yeah, yeah, right. recognize symptoms and make an educated guess about right. what this means. And then, and of course, then the, there's a level just beyond that of a surgeon does have a, a you know, physical skill, but he went back and did an MDiv then later because he just was, intellectually bored and it wasn't yeah. answering the metaphysical question. So that yeah. I had several conversations with them and that was a real turning point. And I began to think about, you know, it was only probably a hundred years ago that the, the pastor theologian and the professor was the most important person in society because they were offering a whole way to understand the entirety of life mm -hmm. where the medical doctor was, you know, a, lower person I'm not trying to lower them in society but they didn't have the same kind of power and respect yeah. but now with technological advances they have become the most important person because they can seemingly work yeah, miracles. Work miracles and they kind of can I mean yeah, I'm, we're they, all beneficiaries of it right yeah. but it, it as I've thought about that issue for a while and then when I was reading your book I thought you know this is another this is all related because yeah. We, as we've inoculated death and as we've made medicine our savior yeah. that's both prevented us from thinking about life and death yeah. and it's also changed what we value in yeah. society totally. we change a different kind of person we don't change the person who's thinking about life after death yeah. we value the person that is preventing us from dying or the person who's distracting us from dying or distracting us so yeah. that's the other piece here right, right. Pascal pre predicted this I I can't take credit for this inside I heard it someone else say, say this in, a, in the lecture acknowledges but um, but in our culture, where where because of the great success of modern medicine, where you can really live most of your life ignoring death, if you're an average person, yeah, yeah. Uh, not having to think much about it, we've got all this space to, to do with these years what we want to, and what we're choosing to do is just entertain entertain ourselves, yeah. right? So you look at who else is making money besides doctors, and it's athletes, and yeah. it's it's actors. Yep. And uh, you know, come the on, the we Kardashians, PhDs, we make, should make more money. Yeah, right. Well, That's the whole point well, of let's this. Let's just say uh, you compare annual income of one of the Kardashian girls to Barack Obama. 
was the was the example this person right, gave. Right, right, right. Yeah. What does that tell you about what the culture wow. yeah. values? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, it tells you that we are trying to turn ourselves off to something. Yeah, no, it's very so. It's very powerful. Yeah. One of my hopes for the book is that it's tapping into something that is there in everybody. Yeah. This interest in death, this uh, this sense that you can't avoid it. Yeah. And that maybe it can help us express something that we've been trying to suppress through entertainment and medical yeah. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's a very good book. I enjoyed it very much. In that side there, mm-hmm. you'll see some multicolored envelopes. I see these. Just choose one of those. Just choose one, huh? Just choose right, one. I'm just going to grab it. And they Pull are out. random questions. All right. Good. For Joe's flag for death. That's excellent. Yes, I did. <laughs> so the random questions there, I don't know what's in there either. And I, you'll answer it and then I'll commit to answering the questions. Well. You have to answer yeah. it too. I like this. So. Okay. And you don't know what it is, so I, I could make it, it whatever I want no, it to that's be. That's true. I? I will check afterwards and make sure. Which words or phrases do you overuse? Oh goodness. Maybe oh goodness. I think <laughs> I say that a lot. My southern, my southern self coming okay. out. All right. Um, on and Sunday, maybe your wife I got, I got resounding you. feedback on Sunday from a sermon where I was preaching on First Peter and what he says about slaves and masters, and I was making the case that he's not just baptizing the status quo and apparently I used that like 50 times in the sermon I, I don't the kids know like keeping it I don't, the, the, some yeah. people were I got independently <laughs> feedback from a bunch of people about using that phrase only so one I, sermon or in I mean, one sermon so I don't I know mean, that I'm, I don't know that I'm using that if I overuse it I probably wouldn't know that would I well your wife that's but. what that's that's one good thing <laughs> your wife is good for is yeah. to say hey you know you're saying this all the time but you haven't heard that I haven't heard that until nice. Sunday right. okay <laughs> Baptizing the status quo. Yeah, apparently okay. I used it a lot. I don't know if I had read it and it was top of mind. It was in some commentary and it just... Yeah, it's a nice I'm phrase. ripping you, guys, you commentators off all the time I, I, without knowing that I'm doing it, you know, because I just happened to read it this week and now it's on top of mind. Yeah, and I just, sure. It just comes out. Yeah, it's a good phrase. Uh, it's a good phrase. Uh, yeah. Maybe that should be your next book. Baptizing the status quo. Baptizing or not doing that. It would be a bad thing to do. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, again, this comes from my wife's good pointing out of things. I think probably, actually, I used to say that a lot. I, I think I've tried to excise that, but maybe not. Yeah, and I think the big the big things that my wife, this is so pretty, yeah, it's beautiful. The, the big things that my wife has pointed out are things that she smells as being posturing. Kind of pretentious, yeah. kind of like they come with a nice little adjustment of the glasses. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, which yeah. again, I don't, with a clear conscience, I don't think I'm ever trying to yeah, do that consciously, right. but I'm not without sin, I'm sure. Right. And so, right. and she's particularly sensitive to those things. So, actually, was one of those. Yeah. Um, actually, is kind of a condescending word, isn't it? It's like actually. Yeah. Yeah. You're I, wrong. I, I about think that. I was more subtle in its usage, <laughs> but still, that's what she smelled. Yeah. Not in the pretentious side, but another one. I. This is kind of embarrassing. Huh? I say golly. I don't, I don't know why. I drop a golly every now and then. I don't know uh, why. Um, I'm from the Midwest, but my mom was from Macon, Georgia, and there's yeah. some Southern in me a little bit. Yeah. And, and let's just be honest, say, there, there's a wide range of exclamatory words that are just not available to us in our professions. That's probably true. <laughs> we work with so, what we can. Golly. I also say howdy, but I, I say it largely ironically, but I always get, <laughs> but grief, I get grief about it from my 
kids. And then I think I've said it ironically for yeah. so long, it's not even ironic. It's not ironic anymore. I actually That's say howdy. Before. Yeah. And so then I, my kids are like, no one, my wife's, no one says howdy. They what don't do you, know do you that you're being west? ironic. <laughs> but again, I think I have, it's lost the irony even for me. So yeah. that's a lesson out there. Be careful what you think ironically, they end up catching them. Irony is in the eye of the beholder, isn't that's it? Right. So it's a dangerous tool. Thank you. It's been a great, awesome. great conversation. Man, it's my pleasure. I've loved it. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.